That was a wonderful introduction, and it's certainly a great pleasure to be here. Um, I didn't realize I was going to be the first one speaking in the, in the spring uh, series. It's a great honor. It's also a great honor and pleasure to be in front of so many of my former students, um, whether they took me for classes or, um, or I was involved in their thesis as a, as a reader or a director. It's uh, a wonderful thing. I've, uh, I've taught students from this institution since uh, 1993, actually. I, I, I first taught at Catholic U in the fall of 1993. I was flown in from St. Bonaventure to teach a course on, on Duns Scotus. So it's um, <clears throat> a wonderful thing to be here. Um, I hope you can uh, follow tonight's lecture. Uh, you should each of you have a handout. That's going to be fairly useful um, because a lot of the text I'll be explicating or ideas I'll try to elaborate for you are coming from the quotes in the handout. So let's begin with the first one, which is the very text, first text in your handout. Um, this is roughly halfway through the dialogue. I think that it and the, and the, and the parallel uh, speech by a Deodatus or placed where they are by Augustine because he realizes readers, hearers of the dialogue will be puzzled about what's going on at just about the point where this occurs. So you can see the Latin at the bottom if you want to follow the Latin. It's my own translation, of course. <clears throat> I want you to think that I have not organized little mind games in this discourse, though we are sometimes playful as we talk. Nor do I want what we're inquiring about to be adjudged by the measures of a boy's sensibilities, nor for us to think that small and modest points are at stake. And yet, if I should speak of a certain blessed and everlasting life, to which with God as our guide, that is, with the truth itself as our guide, I earnestly de desire we shall be brought, as by certain steps, measured out to suit our weak gait, I fear I may seem worthy of laughter, inasmuch as I've embarked upon so great a journey, not by the consideration of the things themselves that are signified, but of the signs that signify them." Unquote. Those who are readers of St. Bonaventure will note the steps and the whole process. Clearly, this is one of the passages behind the Itinerarium Mentis and Deum. With these words stated approximately halfway through his philosophical dialogue, De Magistro, Augustine feels compelled to assure his son and interlocutor, Adeodatus, that their long and labyrinthine discussion of words, signification, knowledge, and things is not mere wordplay but has a serious philosophical aim. An assurance of this sort seems necessary, not simply to those involved in the discussion at Kisikiacum, outside of Milano, a place of retreat for Augustine during his preparation for baptism in the late winter and early spring of 387, but also for us, the readers of the written dialogue. Nothing seems stranger than a conversation begun by Augustine's humble question, what do we seem to be doing when we, when we speak, trying to do when we speak, should end with one inner teacher who is Christ. Certainly our contemporary philosophers of language, if they read the dialogue, would be astonished that any inquiry into the nature of language should advance 
to making metaphysical claims about the existence and nature of God. But so it is. My purposes here are several. First, to review the stages of the inquiry into the philosophy of language that constitutes the bulk of the De Magistro. Second, to show that the conclusion reached is actually anticipated in and emerges understandably from the wide-ranging discussions of words, knowledge, and things found in the dialogue. Third, and finally, to review how elsewhere in his writings, Augustine's conclusion that our intellectual knowledge is based upon divine illumination is buttressed by parallel but distinct considerations in other works. It always has its ground in the same general line of reasoning. What we shall see regarding the last point is that the reasoning of Augustine in De Magistro emphasizes the identity of the intelligible object and its immutability, something found as well in the roughly contemporaneous work, which we shall look at briefly, De Libero Arbitrio. So part one of the, of the presentation, stages of inquiry. The stages of the inquiry are outlined within the dialogue itself by the excellent summary praised by, praised by Augustine provided by Deodatus at 7.19. The first stage is actually reached even before the locutors arrive at the consideration of the verse from the Aeneid that occupies a good amount of their attention. That stage establishes the ordering of speech, locutio, to teaching. Even asking questions and learning are included within the scope of the end of teaching inasmuch as when we inquire of others, we are teaching them what, what it is we wish to know, 1.1, 1.2. We can, of course, think about things themselves without talking to others. And there might even seem to be a case, we might even seem to encounter a case in which speech, <clears throat> at least the mental speech that Augustine endorses, is not ordered to teaching. Yet even here, the apparent counterexample of the speech of thought not being connected to teaching is handled by Augustine through his pointing out that the speech of thought brings to mind from the memoria, and in that sense teaches ourselves about, the things of which the mental words are signs. And this is the second quote on your handout. Nonetheless, because when we think of the words, we speak interiorly in the, our mind, so too this speech is doing nothing other than calling to mind when the memory to which those words belong causes, by turning over those words, the things themselves to come to mind of which the words are signs, unquote. Here we find the items and the relations that will occupy so much of our attention in reading the dialogue. Words, sign, thought, and things. Before we go on to the second stage, I cannot help pointing out that Augustine's remarks here, when combined with parallel passages in other works, such as De Doctrina Christiana, partially forms the basis for the development of the medieval philosophy of language found in such authors as Roger Bacon, St. Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, and William of Ockham. In the second stage, the interlocutors, after having established that the very essence of a sign is to bring to mind something else, 
and that words are signs, pause to consider the verse of Virgil's Aeneid 2.659. Si nihil ex tanta superis placet urbe relinqui is the, is the line. The inquiry into this verse first takes the turn of trying to articulate what precisely the individual words are signs of, more or less on the assumption that there should be a feature picked out by each word, that is to say that there is an isomorphism between words and things. On this score, they get mixed results at best. The first word, si, if in Latin, might correspond to a state of the speaker's soul, denoting doubt. But the second word, nihil, cannot answer to that which is not, as Augustine rightly claims, for it has to be a sign of something, 2.3. Adeodatus tries out the idea that the item nihil is aligned with the, it, what the item nihil is aligned with is the mind's expectation that something should be that is not. They come to grief, however, in any event, when they reach the humble preposition X, for there seems to be no single thing to which X answers once Augustine rejects the effort by Odeodatus to say that X is just another way of expressing ab, which clearly is a dodge because it's just a synonym. This effort to get something to answer to X is actually quite fruitful. It brings up the case of ostension and its limits. Now those who haven't read much in the 20th century philosophy of language might not know this, so let me explain. Ostension is pointing as you can see from ostendo, ostendere. So the idea is that uh, this, of course, grows actually out of Hobbes' theory of language in, in modern philosophy, that, that, that it's, it's, it's called by modern, well, 20th century philosophers of language, the Fido, Fido view. So just like I named Fido when I pointed him, and he's Fido, and there's Fido, the idea is that words can be explained by some kind of pointing, and that's how we get their reference. So the, the, this leads in a discussion of that approach. And it's, uh, Wittgenstein, of course, we're very impressed by this in the next passage, you know, in the Philosophical Investigations. Um, and um, I think he, I think Ludwig Wittgenstein thinks this is Augustine's view. You'll see it, it actually isn't Augustine's view, but I think he thinks it is. Um, uh, in any event, it's been interpreted by many people as a model for language learning, which has failed, which it certainly is. Uh, but Augustine is telling you that it fails, and so it's kind of paradoxical that they think that that's Augustine's view. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, it's a stension that's at stake here. We can point to bodies and at least some of their qualities and hence assign reference for at least some words. That's true. And certain humans, such as deaf persons and actors, can even extend the range of ostension to items such as smells through their gestures and their pantomimes. Indeed, in the Middle Ages, this list of nonverbal signs will be further extended by including the entire system used by the cloistered religious who are forbidden from speaking. In fact, this, it's, if you read a lot of this stuff, and believe me, I've read a lot of this stuff, you'll see that Roger Bacon uses this, William Wacom uses this as an alternative sign language model. The range of what, we can, what, what can be communicated by ostension seems, however, quite limited. And furthermore, is itself a case, albeit nonverbal, of giving a sign. Yet the theme of signs has now been broached and is in effect introduced as a category into which words may now be placed. 
In fact, this and the related passages are already accounted by historians among the points of origin for the present-day field of semiotics. The interlocutors now try out an alternative way in which the connection between words and things might be made, instantiation. Now, instantiation is, as the name suggests, literally doing or performing what it is you, th you say the sign is about. <clears throat> the example they take up initially is walking. But the problem from the would-be learner's point of view is immediately obvious. The teacher of the signification of the sign cannot be engaged in that activity that he instantiates already when the sign is enunciated. For then any variation or modification in the activity will itself be thought by the learner to be what's meant by the spoken sign. The only possible activity in which the exercise in the mode will not cause confusion, perhaps, is speaking itself. So instantiation is limited to showing only those things that we are not doing when we're asked the meaning of a sign, setting aside, of course, the case of speaking. At the third stage, we get some useful and ultimately quite influential divisions of signs. This is at 4.708. There's a division of signs that is according to the manner in which signs may be shown, encompassing one point A, showing signs by signs, one point B, showing signs by things through instantiation or extension, and one point C, showing signs Showing, sorry, showing the things that consist in giving signs. Then we get another division. A division of signs according to what they pertain to. So a division of signs into what pertains to the ear, which clearly is spoken words, what pertains to the eyes, which is gestures, and written words that pertains to both the eyes and the ears, Although Augustine emphasizes that written words are not properly words, but signs of words, conjuring as they do the properly spoken words that pertain to the ear. And signs are finally divided into 3A. Signs chiefly words that signify other signs as opposed to 3B. Signs that directly signify things, whether sensible or intelligible. These divisions involve efforts to hierarchize and categorize signs so that we end up with the following schema. This is at uh, critical edition, page 167. Word can be a sign of, and I'm going to deliberately translate this Latin word two ways because he hasn't distinguished the two senses yet. Word can be a sign of noun, name, nomen. Noun, name, nomen, can be a sign of river. Right? And river can be a sign of a river, which itself is not a sign. So you get this hierarchy. Indeed, to cover precisely the latter case, Augustine at this point coins a new technical sense of significabilia, to mean, to mean the things that are not signs that are nonetheless conveyed or signified by signs. This discussion is related, obviously, to the distinction eventually introduced into the Latin tradition by Boethius, a distinction between names of first and second imposition. You get this, of course, in Boethius's logical writings. But the new topic that gets into the discussion at this point is that of signs that refer to themselves and those that do not. At the fourth stage, the topic of self-referring expressions 
naturally arises out of the consideration of items such as nomen and verbum, name and word, insofar as each has a, both a general and a specific meaning. Much effort is spent on these self-referring expressions, occupying some six pages of the Latin text. But eventually, we arrive at the following points. I'm condensing a lot of dialogue, but this is the general gist of it. Um, nomen can be understood as a general word for name, and any word can be a name. But it can also be understood as, part, as a part of speech, and thus can be what we call noun. Verbum, likewise, can be understood as a general word for word, but also as a part of speech, distinguished from nouns, and thus be what we call verb. Immediately connected to these two points are efforts to express precisely the extension of mutually referring words. A word may be called a sign, and a sign may be called a word, but word is a narrower and sign a wider extension. Word and name, on the other hand, are of the same extension, but do not signify what they do signify in the same sense. And finally, nomen in Latin and onoma in Greek can refer to each other being the translation for each other, but also signify the same things that they signify in exactly the same respect and thus are synonyms. This is at 5.13. At this point, the reader, and I assume by now my own very patient hearers, are pretty well overwhelmed. And it's no accident that it is exactly at this point that Deodatus gives his wonderful summary that's so much praised by Augustine, and Augustine, the comment I quoted at the outset of the lecture, emphasizing the seriousness of the inquiry and its goal of bringing us to the highest things. But we are not done with words yet by any means. Augustine gets this second phase of the discussion started by asking whether the general thesis that things are better than their signs is an acceptable one. Adeodatus demurs, using the example of kainum, filth in Latin, which is certainly not as a thing better than its pretty sounding sign, even though it's only one letter away from the word which, of course, is heaven. Yet Augustine points out, even so, the, the fact that signs are for the sake of designating things shows that there's some ordination of things, of things over signs because signs are for the sake of things. What is put forth at this point in the dialogue is that knowledge of things is better than their signs though knowledge of things may not be preferable to knowledge of signs in all respects. What now comes, and quickly so, are two general points that I'm sure frustrated you as much as it frustrated me in the dialogue, which is there are two general points, one of which is the antithesis of the other. They come on the heels of each other right now, and it's after this very long discussion of the different ways you can look at signs. And the reader, I think, is deliberately put on his heels by this move by Augustine. The first general conclusion reached is that insofar as teaching necessarily involves signs, nothing is taught without signs, it seems, including knowledge itself, which, if we've, as we have seen, is dearer than signs. But this conclusion is now immediately 
and definitively refuted. And Augustine, in a caution clearly inspired by Plato's Phaedo, 89a to 91c, warns the Deodotus not to become discouraged if their inquiry upsets claims that look to be established and all settled. Things are learned without signs all the time, Augustine points out. The sun, the moon, the stars are all learned and known about without the intermediation of signs. Indeed, as Augustine puts it, and this is the third quote on your handout, if we consider matters carefully, you will perhaps discover that there's no thing that can be learned through its signs. For when I'm given a sign, if I'm unaware of the thing of which it is the sign, the sign can teach me nothing. Yet if I do know the thing of which the sign is a sign, what does the sign teach me? For the word does not teach me the thing which it signifies when I read in the book of Daniel, and the sarabari were not changed. For to be sure, when I first, when at first the, the two syllables ka put, that's the word for head in Latin, first struck my ears, I was as ignorant of what those sounds signified as I was when I heard or read sarabari. But after ka put was said in my presence many times, I took note and perceived when it was said, and thus discovered it was the expression for a thing, which was very well known to me by my seeing it. Before I discovered this, the word was to me just a sound. But afterwards, I learned it was a sign when I came to find out what a thing it was a sign for. The thing, however, I did not, as I have said, learn by signification, but by sight. And so it is rather the case that a sign is learned by the things being known than that the thing gets to be known by the signs being given. So this is the, so we're back now to things. And this precedence of things over all else is going to be critical to what he's going to do now. So the section, sec second section of my lecture is entitled Philosophy of Language and Philosophy of Mind. We have reached the culmination of the lengthy discussion of words and signification that is the minefield often ignored and quite often bypassed through all, which all the readers of the De Magistro in its entirety must pass. What is the upshot of that discussion? Augustine himself tells us what it is when he says, quote, and this should be the fourth quote on your hands up. Yes. Words are good for this much, to give them their full due. They advise us to seek into things. They do not display things so that we may come to know them. By words, we only learn words, or rather, not even words, but the sound and din of the words. For items that are not signs cannot be words. Even if the sound is heard, I do not know the word to be a word until I know what it is a sign of. That argument is most true then, and is most truly expressed, that claims when words are uttered, we either know what they signify or we do not. If we do, we call the things to mind rather than learn about them. If we are unaware of those things, however, we don't even call them the mind, 
but perhaps we are advised to seek into them. The argument that Augustine is referring, is referring to at the end of this passage, as the editor of the Latin text of the Magistro, K.D. Dower, notes, is somehow derived, perhaps from some of the Platonic books that uh, Am Augustine got from Ambrose when, when he refers to this course in the Confessions very famously, from key passages on the philosophy of language to be found in Plato's writings, especially in the Cratylus, 388b, but it also calls to our mind, I hope, the attention uh, and our attention to the more epistemological background to be found in the Mino, ADE. The philosophical point that emerges accordingly is that language, for all its richness and internal complexity, is such that it is parasitic upon things and our knowledge of things. To stay within the realm of language is to be at one removed from things. Hence the self-critical remarks of Augustine in the quotation I gave us at the outset of the lecture. And in any event, language always trades on a logically and epistemologically prior acquaintance with things. As he puts it at 1037, Rastam respondebo cuncta quae ilis verbis significata sunt in nostra notitia iam fuise. I shall answer that all the things which are signified by those words, or already exist in our knowledge, in nostra notitia. Incidentally, this appeal by Augustine to the background and uniformity of things behind the phenomenon of language is parallel to the opening lines, of course, of Aristotle's De Interpretatione, 16.8.3-8, in which Aristotle points to the constant features of, of pathemata and chremata, behind the phenomena of spoken and written language. This, I would suggest, is the point where the philosophy of language leads us into the heart of the Augustinian philosophy of mind. And thus, the seemingly irrelevant discourse, long as it is, about language, actually does and is meant to bring us to the final portion of the dialogue, dealing with the philosophy of mind and the thesis of the divine illumination. In our accounting for the, our, our acquaintance with sensibles, there's no undue complication or mystery involved regarding how matters stand. If we simply read the Daily Rhythm of Arbitrio, books two, book, book two, chapters 3.7 to 7.9, we find Augustine outlining a quite Aristotelian-oriented view of sense knowledge, including distinctions between proper and common object of sense, a doctrine of internal sense, whose functions are quite parallel to those of the sensus communis, as is traditionally understood, and a distinction between private and public objects of sense awareness. Whether Augustine gets, this material for, gets the material for this perspective on sense knowledge from reading Greek sources, or Latin translations by Marius Victorinus of Greek texts of Plotinus, where the latter summarizes Aristotle's Neonima, and perhaps texts of Porphyry, or in some other manner is very hard to say. But there can be no doubt that Augustine thinks our sense knowledge is reliable and depends upon direct experience of sensible objects, even if he tends towards saying that the senses are active in the production of their own acts, rather than wholly passive in the manner that many Aristotelian commentators would maintain. But once we take note of this background, 
we start to see the source of the puzzle that the next portion of the text draws us into. How can we say that we have di similarly direct acquaintance <clears throat> to the kinds of acquaintance we have with sensibles with the universals when these can only be grasped by our intellectual powers? For we must have some prior acquaintance with them if it's the case that we have words, i.e. signs of them, because we've seen signs call to mind things and things precisely as already known about. That's, that's the difficulty. The sensibles, there's no problem. You're acquainted with the sensibles to your sense experience. How do you get primitive acquaintance with these intelligibles? Augustine here gives us no complex theory of how we know intelligibles. He simply asserts that we do not get them from each other, but rather, take the, rather get them by taking counsel from the truth that dwells within the inner teacher that dwells within the mind. The model that Augustine appeals to is naturally the standard one of light. Just as physical light of the heavenly bodies allows us to see what we can, so this inner light of the mind displays intelligible items to us. We use the senses to come to know about bodies, but consult the truth with our reason to know intelligibles. And this is the next quote on your handout. Quote, when we deal with items that we see with our minds, that is, with our understanding and reason, we speak, of we speak of such things as present in that inner light of truth, whereby he who is called the inner man is enlightened and enjoys such things. Then, too, however, a hearer of our discourse, if he, too, sees such things in the secret and simple eye of his mind, is aware of what I'm talking about in his own gaze, not by means of my words, Therefore, I do not teach such a person when I say things that are true, and he sees those same true things. For he is taught not by my words at all, but by the things themselves, rendered manifest by God, displaying them within us. And that is why such a person could respond when he is asked about such matters." Unquote. A philosophical point before I go and read the next section of this lecture. This is the, the problem of the identity of the intelligible object. This is a problem that will occur, for example, in Averroes. How is it that we think the same thing? How in principle, in other words, is the same intelligible available to both of us? This is Augustine's version of this. And this too will not be forgotten. I mean, mind you, when Averroes solves this problem to his own satisfaction in Three De Anima, he ends up saying it's because the same mind is thinking the thought. But that gives you an idea of how hard this problem is to explain how it is we end up with the same universals. So there are two dimensions to this, as we'll see. The identity of the intelligible object for Augustine and the immutability of that object. That latter thing is going to force us to the divine illumination thesis. But this other dimension of the problem, the identity of the intelligible object, that's a problem in authors who don't hold divine illumination at all. It's a very serious problem. And he's got both of these in mind as he goes through this and the parallel passage in De Libre Arbitrio, which we're just about to turn to. So far, we might think, as many interpreters have thought, that we are getting a slightly adjusted Platonism here. We might say to ourselves, well, Augustine's just tweaking the theory of ideas inherited from Plato. 
in such a way that he does not have to endorse any version of anamnesis and the pre-existence of the soul to account for the presence of the intelligibles into the human mind. But actually, such a view cannot be quite right for at least two reasons. First, Augustine was actually still tinkering with the possibility of the pre-existence of the soul at this point in his thought, as he tells us later in the Re Tractationes relating to the De Libro Arbitrio. Second, so it's not, an, it's not that he, it's not, that can't be the reason. Uh, second, the point that Augustine emphasizes about the universals is not much so much their being predicable of many as opposed to the individual items discerned by the senses, but they're being present in such a way that each inquirer sees them in a publicly available space distinct from each of the inquirer's minds, as well as the immutable character of those intelligibles. The former point we've seen in the quotation just given, while the latter is described briefly when Augustine tells us about the teacher as Christ, the power and the everlasting wisdom of the immutable God. But these points are given even more articulation in the closely related Kasichiacum dialogue, De Libero Arbitrio, to which we now turn. To review the entire dialogue, the Libra Arbitrio would lengthen our presentation considerably. So I shall confine our attention to the second book's progress. We begin that book with the query of whether, in solving the problem of whether God is the cause of evil, God should have given us free choice at all, inasmuch as it's through the exercise of that gift that we go astray. Augustine presses Evodius on the point whether he knows or merely believes that God exists. Evodius, and answers that he unswervingly believes but wishes to understand that God exists, 2.5.16. Augustine says that the order of the inquiry will be to show whether God exists, then whether all things are from God insofar as they are good, and finally whether free choice is to be reckoned among the good things. The road to God's existence begins with the interlocutors affirming that they exist, otherwise they could not be deceived, Incidentally, this is, of course, among the items listed by Professor Etienne Gilson in his uh, dis doctoral dissertation of 1913 at the Sorbonne, Descartes et la Théologie, as one of the remote sources for our friend Descartes. <laughs> There's no doubt about it. Uh, the Franciscan uh, with whom he had the lengthy correspondence complained of this, that he was just cheating and copying chunks of Augusta. He's doing more than that, but, but he is cheating. <laughs> <clears throat> and that things existing hierarchically, some merely exist and not, are not alive, some are alive and exist, some understand are alive and exist. When the interlocutors turn to the examination of the senses, they're exploring the realm of what is alive and exists. For Augustine insists that the entire range of sense cognition both the external and internal senses, is found in the higher animals. In the case of the senses, the external sense is superior to the ex the internal senses is superior to the external, insofar as what judges is prior to what is judged, and the internal sense judges the external, being aware of the proper objects of the external senses through their activities, and being aware of whether the external senses are functioning or not. A point that Augustine illustrates by appealing to an animal being aware that it's not seeing and so opening its eyes. 
None of the senses can be aware of the limits, however, of their own operations. Sight does not know that color is its proper object. Indeed, only reason can know the proper objects of the senses, as well as the distinction between proper and common objects of the senses. In addition to knowing that there is an inner sense and judging its limitations and object. Reason, then, is what's prior to all else in a human being and what allows humans to be classified at the level of items that are sense and understand. But another distinction is introduced by Augustine before he leaves the realm of the senses. The distinction between public and private objects of awareness. There's something inherently public about the senses of sight and hearing. We hear with our senses of hearing, we see with our senses of sight, but the sights and the sounds are public. There are, there are, in, the, there are in the cases, as Augustine, as cases mentioned, as Augustine says, no object so perceived that they are exclusively mine or yours, but in the case of hearing and sight, each is present to each of us as a whole. But things become a little less public with smell and touch and taste. For unlike in the cases of sight and hearing, we cannot both at one and the same time get the whole of the perceived object. Rather, when you touch one part of something, I can't simultaneously touch that part. And much the same is true of smells and tastes, for in the latter case, the object is actually consumed in the act of sensing it. The private is accordingly what each of us perceives going on within him or, him or herself alone, such as a headache or a toothache or a stomach ache from bad coffee we had this morning. And what pertains to our nature, sorry, I'm a coffee snob. <laughs> and what pertains to his own nature <clears throat> but the public is what all of us perceive, all of us suitably pl pl uh, placed, sentient agents, that is to say, perceive with no corruption or change within the perception. Clearly, the problem that lies before the inquiries at this, inquirers at this juncture is what the proper object of reason is and what the items are that reason allows us to know. Augustine first mentions the order of number. Number is neither properly perceived by the senses nor are mathematical truths among the items that change. Rather, the numbers and mathematical truths generally are among the things we know that are present to us all and are unchangeable. Yet wisdom seems to be of the very same sort, especially if we describe wisdom as the truth in which the highest good is discerned and clinged to, held on to. The Latin all those there is always ad harere for those who want to know. Phenomenologically, this turns up in the desire of all to be happy and the acknowledgement by all that wisdom is the source of happiness. Yet Augustine presses these points further. Wisdom and the rules of wisdom are commonly available and are at least implicitly recognized by all. For example, the proposition that we should all live justly, that the inferior should be subordinated to the, to the superior, that we should give each person what is rightfully theirs, are principles that rule our lives of action and are recognized by all. Metaphysical truths connected to these truths are equally recognized universally, that the eternal is prior to the temporal, that the corruptible is better than the, in, that the incorruptible is better than the corruptible, and so forth. Augustine calls these the principles the rules of wisdom and argues that they are items of reference in both our activities of knowledge and choice. Consequently, as principles, they cannot be at the same level that we are as rational animals, for they are prior to our activities. They rule in the sense of judge us. We do not judge them. 
Rather, if we judge rightly, we judge in accordance with them. And if we act rightly, rightly, we act in accordance with them. As Augustine says, and this is your next quote, Wherefore, you, Evodius, cannot deny that there is an unchangeable truth that contains all, these, all of these truths that are unchangeably true. That truth, you cannot say, is mine or yours or belongs to any man, other man, but belongs to all who discern these inalterable truths that are present in wondrous ways as a secret yet public light and made available to us in common. Anything that is so common to all those who reason and understand, who can claim that it pertains to any one of our natures? You remember, I take it, what we said about the senses of the body when we treated these points earlier, that just as colors and sounds we grasp commonly by our senses of the eyes and the ears, the colors and sounds that you and I hear and see simultaneously together do not pertain to the nature of our eyes and ears, but are common objects of perception. So too the things that you and I grasp in common by our own minds you cannot claim to belong to the nature of either of our minds, unquote. And you see very clearly here the two themes, the immutability of the truths known and the identity of the common identity of the intelligible object. We can now to begin to appreciate the technique of Augustine in the two dialogues we've examined. In the De Magistro, he moves from words to the things that the words ultimately must signify showing that, they all, that, that always the functionality of the signs trades on a prior and direct acquaintance with the things. When it comes to sensible things, the source is clearly our experience. But what then do, do we do to explain how signs of universal concepts and principles work? We need to argue that they're available to the mind directly so that we may be said to have acquaintance with them. But given their character as present to all yet unchangeable, that must mean they're available to the mind in a, in a truth that is prior to the mind and all other creatures. In the Lelibre Arbitrio, matters proceed similarly, though with a twist. Though the main topic of the entire work is the problem of God and the cause of evil. In the segment we looked at, the existence of God is what the target of the inquiry is. The path leading to God goes by way of our cognitive powers, starting with our senses. Once we've examined and delimited the objects and manner of of disclosure of the senses, we turn to the intellect. Once we do, once we do so, we come to, uh, we come to quickly, quickly to the conclusion that there are publicly available objects of understanding just as common to our minds as sights are to our eyes. These objects, however, cannot be accounted for by any process that would allow them to be in our minds or for that matter to be produced by our minds for the character of the objects is immutability, whereas our minds are quite mutable. We sometimes know, we sometimes do not. We sometimes opine, we sometimes do not. Hence, the objects of the mind must be available to us in an unchangeable truth that is prior to our mind, a public yet secret light, as Augustine puts it. Public because available to all. And disclosing objects, available to all. Secret, because none of us can see with our eyes the light whereby we see those unchanging truths, and the truth itself can go unrecognized by the mind if it does not reflect upon how it knows the unchangeable truths that it knows. If the way above is shown through words in the name Magistro, the way above is shown by cognition 
and its features in the De Libero Arbitrio. We could go on to examine more works by Augustine in which the thesis of divine illumination is either formally or incidentally mentioned. In all cases that I know of, however, we would find the following constants. The truths appealed to as examples of the objects of the mind will be characterized as unchangeable truths, available to us all in a light above our minds. Given these constants, what should we say philosophically about Augustine? Is his epistemology just a Christianized version of Platonism, or perhaps Platinianism? The answer, according to many, as I said, should be affirmative. But I really do not think so, and not simply for the reasons already mentioned. The major ontological divide for Augustine does not occur at the points that it does for either Plato or Plotinus. For Plato, there is one divide between the sensible and the intelligible, that is between the sensible individual items of the world we grasp by our senses and the forms. Yet there's another divide between the forms and the first principle. The latter is sometimes termed the good, but also the one. No matter the name, the highest reality is above even the forms. Yet it causes, in a way never quite disclosed by Plato, the intelligibility of the forms and thus their reality. For Plotinus, there are three levels prior to the sensible world, and the derivation of reality is much more clearly depicted. The one, and he usually calls it the one, although in a few texts the good, is beyond being and beyond mind. From the one, intellect comes forth, followed by soul, and then the material world is formed by soul, drawing upon mind. This doctrine of emanation in which the highest thing causes everything else, with the causal process proceeding in stages, has a long Nachleben, being the source of much later Greek philosophical speculation in figures such as Porphyry and Proclus, but also forming a major theme in the Arabic philosophical tradition, as may be seen in the Libra de Causis, Al-Farabi, Avicenna, and even Averroes. What does Augustine make of this kind of Platonic doctrine, and how does he differ for one thing, Augustine insists there's one fundamental divide that supersedes all others, and that is the divide of creation. Everything is either created or uncreated. If it is the latter, it is eternal. That is prior to any and all time, and it is immutable. If it is the former that is created, it is changeable, and thus in time. We can see the difference of this metaphysical outlook in our own problem. Augustine is not merely concerned to find a one apart from the many in the, way on, in the manner that Plato treated the problem of the universals, but to locate the unchangeable source of intelligibility. In other words, it's the unchangeable character of the universals that needs a much more fundamental explanation in Augustine than it does in the Greek authors. And that explanation can only be found in the unchangeable, uncreated principle that is the source of the intelligibility for our created world. Thank you.